and turn, if you will, to 1 Samuel chapter 18. 1 Samuel 18 and 19, two chapters before us today. While you're turning there, just a correction for uh, those of you planning on coming to the men's breakfast. The breakfast will not go from 10 a.m. to 11 p.m. You were trying to figure out how to stretch a breakfast burrito that long um, time. Uh, I, I am strongly encouraging all the men of we need each other, <laughs> and we need for a couple hours that morning. So please come, uh, bring a friend, come together, and uh, we'll trust in that it will be a, a profitable time. Also, just a word again about Tuesday, this coming Tuesday. Uh, I am going to talk about the topic of biblical friendship. I think it's something our church needs. I think it's something that I need. Um, and just in light of where we are in 1 Samuel, looking at Jonathan and David a little bit today, more in the coming weeks, I think it's helpful to see what the Bible says about being a friend. Again, we, we take so much of um, how we live our life from the world. The world's ways of friendship are not the same, should not be the same as the Christians. And so I think it's good just to get together as the people on Tuesday for an hour uh, each time, just come to one of those one hour long and to look at what the Word of the Lord says about friendship. All right, with that being said, okay, hope you didn't start your clocks yet. That's not preaching time, all right? <laughs> you can start now. First Samuel 18 and 19. Again, uh, when I have lengthy passages, the normal pattern is for me just to read the text as we go. So I'll do that. I'll read the text as we go and explain it. I've entitled this message, Seek Ye First the Kingdom of Self. Seek Ye First the Kingdom of Self. Uh, I'm, I'm guessing all of you have heard the name Mozart, famous composer. What you may not know is a composer that was a little older than him, living in the same area, named Salieri. Salieri was a composer, older composer, that thought he was better than Mozart. Uh, he actually thought that he uh, had more character than Mozart, and he actually prayed to God uh, that God would bless his labors, his work. Well, as Mozart started coming on the scene, people focused their attention on Mozart, rightly so, and Salieri became known for his bitter jealousy. In fact, Salieri uh, started slandering Mozart, his wife, and even sought to ruin Mozart's reputation so much for the better character, but that's often what people can do. And let me say this, it's often what even Christians can do when someone is succeeding more than we are, maybe having relational success better than we are, or business success better than we are, success in church life, getting this position that we want or whatever it may be. We can quickly become a people that think we're righteous and then start turning on people who God is working through. And you see this in 1 Samuel 18 and 19 in the life of Saul. These two chapters are about Saul's jealousy of David. The reason jealousy exists is because there's something broken in our relationship with God. There's something broken. There's something going on between us and God, and it's not his problem, it's our problem. Our sin gets in the way. We're concerned about the kingdom of self. We're not getting what we want. And so we look at people who are getting things that we want, and we begin, as Saul does, looking at them with an eye toward harm. Maybe not physical, but we certainly don't cry when they go through suffering. And we might even become malicious with our words. 
I think there's some good lessons for us in these two chapters, good lessons to learn from the negative example of Saul. So that's what we're going to see this morning, uh, Saul's jealousy of David. I'm going to explain the text as we go through it. So again, just like a couple weeks ago, your points will come at the end. I'll walk through the text, explain it, and then give us three lessons from 1 Samuel 18 and 19. And I'm going to tell you, I'm going to use a phrase or use a sentence that uh, one of my seminary, seminary professors would say as we got into class. He'd say, guys, just a heads up, we're going to be walking past gold today. So friends, just a heads up, we're going to be walking past gold. We're not going to be able to stop and look at every piece of it. Um, you'll have to go to some of these things later. There's so much in here. I mean, I could preach three sermons on 1 Samuel 18, 1 through 5 in Jonathan's response to David. But I think it's important to get the big picture here, so bear with me in that regard. I'm going to take it basically paragraph by paragraph, so let's look at chapter 18, verses 1 through 5. This is following David's defeat of Goliath, and David's victory is Israel's victory. And so David has promised one of the daughters of Saul, and we come to chapter 18, verse 1. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. So here you see right off the bat David's growing popularity. He defeats Goliath, the, the soul of, of his new friend, the son of the king Jonathan. The soul of Jonathan is knit to him. So far, there aren't many heroes in the book of 1 Samuel and Jonathan is one of them. You see Jonathan's bravery. You saw it a few chapters ago, his bravery and, and his loyalty, his trust in the God of Israel. And now David leads the people in a military victory, and Jonathan and David ha- have, a, have, a, have a soul that's knit together. That, that phrase, knit together, actually speaks of, of chains being bound together. When you think knit, you think of two needles and some yarn. You think, well, that's easy to conquer. No, this is, this is they, they are one. They are chained together. And so Jonathan has this response to David that will be unlike Saul's. And in, this, in these two chapters, Jonathan is, he's been called the literary foil to Saul. So Jonathan is featured at the beginning of 18. He's also going to be featured at the beginning of 19. But then the writer is going to explain a lot about Saul, which really has the opposite response to David. So Jonathan is loyal to David. You see it in just a few verses here. And then Saul, very disloyal, wants to kill him. Chapter 19, Jonathan again, let's look at his faithfulness, and then let's spend most of our time focusing on the ridiculousness that is Saul's response to David. That's what's happening in these chapters. And so we see David grow in popularity. In fact, at the end of the the paragraph in verse 5, it says, uh, this was good in the sight of all the people, the fact that David would be set before um, certain military groups and was successful, and also in the sight of Saul's servants. So Jonathan loves David. Saul's servants think he's admirable. All the people think he's admirable. Actually, six times in just chapter 18, it's going to talk about the fact that people love David, which is a wonderful thing, but not if you're jealous of David. The the phrase, Jonathan loved him as his own soul, 
We're told that twice in this paragraph. That phrase means, when you think of love here in this context, think of loyalty. Jonathan is loyal to David as he is loyal to even his own soul, Jonathan's own soul. Jonathan really is not the main focus of these two chapters, but he is an important figure. In Jonathan here, you see a man who would be the next king. Normally, it's the king's uh, oldest son that will become king, and that's the way it is for the nations around Israel. So, Saul being Israel's first king, it would likely be in their mind that Jonathan would be the next king, perhaps. But we know David's already been anointed king. He's going to be king in the future. And Jonathan here is so united to David, he takes off his royal robe and his armor and gives it to David. That's like a gold medal winner taking off their gold medal, shaking their head, no, 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 this belongs to you, the silver medalist, and they put it on their head. You are the gold medalist. That's what Jonathan's doing here. David, you deserve the rights and privileges that I have. Jonathan, in this way, looks a lot like Christ, doesn't he? Philippians 2, not considering equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he left heaven, came to earth as a slave to serve. There's something very admirable here about Jonathan. Love in Jonathan's eyes is not rooted in self-interest. That's important for all of us. Love is not rooted in self-interest. So often we love those who can benefit us. Jonathan loves David. His love is not rooted in self-interest. As a matter of fact, God even gives his own son because he loves. If you think about love, think about giving. Biblical love means giving. God loves the world, so he gives his son. Jonathan loves David, so he gives him his status. This is love. And it's the opposite of selfish jealousy that we see in Saul. Verses 6 to 9 read as follows. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. Saul does what so many of us would be provoked to do. Hey, I've done some great things. Why is he getting more credit than I am? This is what Saul does. This is a common thing that would happen. Uh, every year at a certain time, kings would lead their people out to war, their, their military out to war. When they returned home, the women would make up these songs, and they would sing them to the king, to the leader, and it was this, you know, big ticker tape parade like you may see, and, and that's, that's what happened every year. Well, here they're coming home, and Saul struck his thousands, and maybe off in the distance, Saul hears that first line and thinks, I like this song. And then the second line comes, and David has struck his ten thousands, and Saul becomes very angry and displeased. And then it's rather funny to the reader of 1 Samuel. Saul says, I don't know who he was talking to here. Maybe it's just kind of out in the air. Maybe it's with people all around. What more can he have but the kingdom? To which I'd imagine if we were there, we'd kind of look at each other going, you going to tell him? I going to tell him? He's going to have the kingdom. Saul doesn't know that, but he's going to have the kingdom. 
And Saul eyed David from that day on. It, it's the look of when David entered the room, kind of the, I don't like you. But it's more than that. That word actually means eyed him to do him harm. So he's looking for a way to do David harm. He sees David. He looks for ways to do him harm. Chapter 18, verses 10 to 16. The next day, a harmful spirit from God. This is judgment, okay? Saul's wrongly responded to God already multiple times. He's wrongly responding to God's future king. Whether he knows that or not is, is not, not germane to this. The fact is he's responding wrongly to one who has led Israel in victory. So, because of God judging him, the next day a harmful spirit, you can say a demon if you will, a harmful spirit from God, God's using this demon, rushed upon Saul and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre. As he did day by day, Saul had his spear in his hand and Saul hurled the spear for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. He would go out every year and come back victorious, and they loved him. The whole nation loves him. Saul, angry, fearful, angry, jealous. And then we learn in verse 12 demon-possessed. God is going to use the judgment he puts on Saul as one of the challenges that David's going to receive. This is what God often does. You think of Pharaoh in the book of Exodus, hardens his heart, hardens his heart, hardens his heart, hardens his heart. What does God end up doing to Pharaoh's heart? God hardens Pharaoh's heart in response. Well, that's going to that's gonna hurt God's people, isn't it? Sure, for a time. But he's going to bring them through suffering, through the Red Sea, and he's going to bring them into the promised land. God is going to use Pharaoh's rebellion and even harden his heart further so that his name will be proclaimed. God is going to use Saul's rebellion to put David on the run in uncomfortable situations, running for his life for quite a while, a number of years, And he's going to do so in a way that strengthens David and ultimately leads to David leading the nation like they need to be led. God has his ways. God, we're told, has his ways in the the time of Jesus being crucified. The Bible says Satan entered the heart of Judas, entered the one betraying God's own son, Jesus. Satan entered his heart. This is all under God's purposes. Judas betrays Jesus to death, and we receive salvation because of that. So God is using these harmful spirits for his purposes. And notice, as Saul's throwing his spears at David, and it's interesting that he wanted to pin David to the wall twice, but David, or pin him to the wall, but David evaded him twice, I just kind of wonder what was David thinking after the first time. Maybe he didn't mean it. Let's start playing again. I don't know. But David didn't leave, stayed there, kept playing. Saul threw the spear twice, missed twice, because, as we're told in verse 14, the Lord was with him. 
David in these two chapters evades death a number of times, and we know the whole time it's because the Lord is with him. Here's one thing to note. It's not a lesson for later. This is just kind of right here in the middle. God protects his people. Even when God's people die, they are with him instantly. God does not let his people finally fall. He'll let Peter suffer and struggle, but he will not let Peter's faith fail. See that in Luke, 20, uh, Luke chapter 22. So God cares for his people. He's caring for his king. He's keeping King David alive and Saul's jealousy is all the more before us. And it's interesting, he tries to pin David to the wall twice, and the very next verse said, Saul was afraid of David. If you're getting throw, spears thrown at you, you'd think you were the one that's afraid. But no, it's the one throwing that's afraid here. He's afraid of David because the Lord's with him. That's the power of God. Verses 17 to 30, now we learn about this marriage that was talked about before. David's supposed to marry one of Saul's daughters, right? Verse 17, then Saul said to David, here's my elder daughter Merib. I will give her to you for a wife. He had obviously promised that before. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, let not my hand be against him, but the hand of the Philistines be against him. I mean, I miss every time I throw a spear at him, but maybe the Philistines won't miss. Verse 18, and David said to Saul, who am I? And who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? See David's humility there. But at the time when Merib, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel, the Meholathite, for a wife. Now Saul's daughter Michal loved David, and they told Saul and the thing pleased him. Saul thought, let me give her to him that she may be a snare for him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. So for some reason, Saul breaks off the commitment to David to have Merib, but he thinks of his other daughter, maybe a daughter who will be a snare to David. She's given me problems all these years. Well, here you go. That's the type of thing that's happening. All right? Not the best way to marry off your daughter, but it's Saul after all. So Saul still thinks that the Philistines will be the one to eventually kill him, David, Therefore, Saul said to David a second time, you shall now be my son-in-law. And Saul commanded his servants, speak to David in private and say, listen, the king has delight in you and all his servants love you. Now then become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke those words in the ears of David. And David said, does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law since I'm a poor man and have no reputation? And the servants of Saul told him, thus and so did David speak. Then Saul said, well, Thus you shall say to David, the king desires no bride price. So this is, this is not going to be a big charge to you, your family. You don't have a lot of money. No bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. And when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. Before the time had expired, David arose and went along with his men and killed 200 of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter Michal for a wife. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord is with David and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually." Then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out to David, 
as often as it came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. So again, David's humble, who am I to marry the king's daughter? I mean, I mean, my family's poor. We can't afford whatever bride price, you know, McCall deserves. And Saul says, no price except for a hundred foreskins. Now this, again, we're in the 21st century. This is foreign to us, right? But kings would often receive the, the plunder from their enemies. I want all their gold. I want all their silver. I want all their animals, whatever it may be. Saul says, I want their hundred foreskins. Now, if you're going to go and get those from someone, they're going to put up a fight, okay? And so Saul knows that. And so that's where he's trying to, he's trying to put David in a position that's going to get him killed. And David comes back bringing more than he was asked for. David, why is David so successful? Why? What have we heard over and over again? The Lord's with him. The Lord's with him. David, or Saul cannot kill David. But he keeps trying. Then we come to chapter 19, and we see four more attempts to kill David that don't work. Four more attempts. But again, we're introduced to Jonathan at the beginning of the chapter. Verses 1 to 7, And Saul spoke to Jonathan his son and to all the servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David. This is son talking to father. Because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine. The Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. So Jonathan speaks up and defends David. Jonathan confronts his own father's sin. Says it'll be a sin for you to continue on and carry this out also. You've benefited from David. Why in the world are you trying to kill him? He's done nothing wrong. This is rather, it's a rather audacious conversation for a son to have with a father, let alone a subject of the king to have with the king. But he does, and Saul listens. One of the things you learn about Saul is he's just backward and forward, and he, he's just here and then there. One time doing something good, the next time doing something evil, this is Saul. But Jonathan stands up for David. Again, something very admirable here that we'll get to a little bit later. But you see character here in Jonathan. See a love that he has for David here in chapter 19. Verses 8 through 10 read as follows. Okay, so, so let's not forget where we left off. Saul listens to Jonathan. Okay, fine. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to harm him. And David's brought back into Saul's presence. Everything's fine. But David keeps succeeding. That's going to continue to provoke Saul. It's kind of like 
when you have a disagreement with friends or uh, someone you love, and you think, okay, okay, fine, I'm not going to do that anymore, and then everything's at peace until people start living again, until something happens, until the next day when something else comes up. Oh, here we go again. That's where we're at. Verse 8, and there was war again. When there's war, what have we been learning happens? David succeeds. There was war again, and David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow, so they fled before him. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul. Again, this is judgment on Saul for his past actions. As he sat in his house with his spear in his hand, and David was playing the lyre, and Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he eluded Saul. Strike three. So that he struck the spear into the wall, and David fled and escaped that night. He tries again to kill him with the spear, and he can't. God is evidently keeping David alive. The second time, just in chapter 19, that Saul has kept David alive. Sorry, God has kept David alive. Uh, Third time, verses 11 to 17. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him, that he might kill him in the morning. So he involves other people in the malice against David. That's something jealousy does. He's involving other people into the malice that he has against David. Saul sends messengers to David's house to watch him, that he might kill him in the morning. But Michal, David's wife, told him, if you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you'll be killed. She tips off David. So Michal let David down through the window, and he fled away and escaped. Michal took an image Why is there an idol in their house? Another question for another time. But there is. It's not out of the realm of possibility, being one of Saul's children. Michal took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with clothes. And then, and when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, he's sick. Then Saul sent the messengers to see David, saying, bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. I don't care if he's sick. Go get him. And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed and the pillow of goat's hair at its head. Saul said to Michal, why have you deceived me thus and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? And Michal answered, he said to me, let me go. Why should I kill you? She acts as if David threatened her. So Saul's incensed at his daughter that she won't turn David over to him. Saul's all of a sudden the righteous one. How can you deceive me? As he's trying to kill David for no reason. Verse 18, now, now David fled and escaped, and he came to Samuel at Ramah. Ah, Samuel. We haven't heard from him in a while, have we? All of a sudden, David goes to Samuel. He doesn't go back to his house. He goes to Ramah, where Samuel is. So he's on the run for his life and escapes to go find the prophet, the one God has been speaking through. Comes to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and lived in Naoth. Now, Samuel actually, before he was going to anoint David, told the Lord, hey, if I anoint David, Saul's going to kill me. Samuel knows the threat that Saul is. David now knows the threat that Saul is. David finds Samuel, two people that may have thought that they're going to be killed by Saul. One of them actually was, you know, trying to be killed by Saul. They find each other and they go and live in Naoth. And it was told Saul... Saul finds out, behold, David is at Naoth in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David, 
And when they came, and, and, when, and when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying, and Samuel standing his head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. So here's what's happening. Saul sends messengers, the messengers come, and Samuel's there. And all of a sudden, they, the messengers come and they see Samuel and these prophets prophesying. What does prophesying mean? Normally it means speaking forth the word of God. Here, there's evidently some sort of ecstatic experience going on with that. The Spirit of God is overtaking people. And so Samuel is there prophesying. The, the messengers of Saul come. And the Spirit of God comes upon the messengers of Saul. And they prophesied. So, so they're almost reversed. Their plans are reversed by the Spirit of God. They're trying to see to it that David is killed, but they get overcome with the Spirit of God, and they start speaking forth the Word of God, probably, again, with some ecstatic things happening. We'll see in a little bit. Saul taken over. So there's this, there's this prophecy going on, speaking forth God's Word, and we don't know what they were prophesying. You know the reason we don't know that? Because the Spirit doesn't tell us. Bible doesn't tell us. It's not important. The important thing is that you know the Spirit of God overtook these men who were trying to kill David because of the order from Saul, trying to capture David. So the Spirit of God is even controlling the enemies of David. Who are the enemies of God? Verse 21, when it was told Saul, he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied, all right, fine, those guys didn't come back. Hey, you guys, you go. They show up and they start speaking forth the words of God, and they're captured by the Spirit of God. Who knows what they're speaking forth? Are they prophesying about David being the coming king? Are they prophesying about the Messiah that's to come? Who knows? But we do know they're controlled by the Spirit of God now. And Saul sent messengers again the third time. What do you think is going to happen? They're going to get taken over too, right, by the Spirit of God. And they also prophesied. Then he himself went to Ramah. Oh, fine. I'll go and do it. All right. Then he himself went to Ramah and came to the great well that is in Seku. So he's outside of Ramah. And he asked, where are Samuel and David? And one said, behold, they're at Naoth and Ramah. And he went there to Naoth and Ramah. And the Spirit of God came upon him also. Okay, let's just stop for a second. Who's in charge in these two chapters? <laughs> the Spirit of God, right? The Spirit of God will do, He will remove His Spirit from Saul, put it on David. He will take a demonic spirit and because of judgment and His purposes, put it on Saul. Remove it from Saul, put His Spirit on Saul for a time. This is how the Holy Spirit often worked in, these, in Israel. Again, the Holy Spirit... It works a different sort of ministry here in the New Covenant. New Covenant, he indwells his people. There, the Holy Spirit would put, his, put himself, the Spirit would, of God would be put on people for certain activities, certain functions at different times. That's why when David confesses in Psalm 51, he says, take not your Holy Spirit from me. Okay, so the Holy Spirit of God is in control of this whole section. The Spirit of God came upon him also, Saul also, and he went and prophesied until he came, in, came to Naoth in Ramah. So Saul keeps speaking forth the word of God now. Saul is overtaken by God. And he too stripped off his clothes. And he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, 
Is Saul also among the prophets? We've heard this before in 1 Samuel. For Saul to speak forth the word of God like the prophets do is rather strange. You know, it's that, and they became that saying, is Saul also among the prophets? Like this isn't normal. Well, here Saul is lying naked, speaking forth the word of God. God not only has him speak forth his word, but he leaves him in a state of shame for a day. All that day, laying naked, Saul's pathetic. Trying to kill David, God shames him, but he's still speaking forth the word of God. God owns this guy. His life is in God's hands. He's been rejecting God, rejecting God, rejecting God, cursing David, cursing David, cursing David. Now he's gonna, his mouth is going to be used to speak forth his word, but he's going to be a, pitiable, pity, a pitied sight in God's eyes and the people's eyes. This is humiliating. God wins. God wins. You fight God, God wins. God will have his final say. It's interesting to note the contrast The section starts with Jonathan out of humility, knowing God's purposes, trusting in God's purpose, taking off his royal robe and giving it to David. You see one trying to hold on to his royalty, Saul, hold on to his kingship, being stripped naked, laying humiliated before God and speaking forth his word, no more cursing of David until later. But you see someone utterly defeated by God. God wins. You cannot go on attacking God's people and God's ways and God himself. You cannot go on and have success doing that. You will be humiliated just like Saul is. Let's look at three lessons for us. There are probably 59 lessons for us, okay? But let's, let's rally around three that I think are really important here from from the way this, these two chapters are laid out. Here's the first lesson for us. Jealousy reveals self-exaltation. When you see someone that's jealous, when you see yourself being jealous, there's something deeper going on. It is people worshiping at the altar of self. I want something I'm not getting. They are getting it. And so we turn our jealousy onto them, but it starts with our own heart being wrong before God. Saul cannot rejoice in David's victories. The God of Israel is protecting his people. If you would have asked Saul, it's 10 years before this, hey, who are the enemies of God's people? Oh, the Philistines. Wouldn't it be great if God defeated them year after year after year after year? Oh, that'd be wonderful. Fast forward, God keeps defeating the Philistines. The people of God are more secure. And all Saul can think about is he's going to take my kingdom. He's getting more credit. He's getting more glory and more praise than I am. Saul's losing sight of the bigger picture. This is what we do when we're jealous. God is working through someone. God is blessing someone. And instead of saying, what a God to bless a child of God we say, why is he blessing them? Why am I not getting the same thing? We're missing the big picture here. Sin makes us stupid. Jealousy reveals self-exaltation. That's why we, when we're jealous, we are seeking first the kingdom of self. You know, if you find yourself jealous, pray the Lord's Prayer, okay? 
Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Just let's go there. Saul can't do that. He's so caught up in his own kingdom, his own credit. But God is working through David. So friend, let me ask you, is there any way that you are jealous of other friends? And don't do, no, 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 I'm a Christian. No, no, no way. That can never happen. Well, we still have the flesh. So let's pause for a moment. Is there any way that you're jealous of other friends? Is there any way that you're jealous of any people at other churches? Any way that you're jealous of other moms? Jealous of any other wives? Jealous of any other fathers? Jealous of any other husbands? Are you jealous of any other Bible study leaders? Are you jealous of anyone else that is a child of God that He is working through? What does that say about where you are at with wanting God to be glorified? What does that say about your own love for yourself and its place in your life? You see Jonathan giving up his rights and privileges, being loyal and loving David. You see Jesus Christ, our own Savior, giving Himself up for you to thrive. And instead of you serving and loving other people, that's turning into malice because you're not getting what you want. James asks the question, well, why do you fight and quarrel? And he gives the answer. Because you want something and you're not getting it. So you murder. You attack other people. So friend, if there's any jealousy in your heart, repent of being angry at people that God is using. And really, to have jealousy and anger towards someone else is also to be angry at God and His providence, isn't it? God chooses how He's going to work. He chooses who He'll bless and how He'll bless. So, I think it'd be good to repent of anger toward God. God, give me, give me eyes to see the bigger picture here. Give me eyes of faith to trust you and what you give me at the time you give it to me. Lord, I want to I think first about your kingdom. So jealousy reveals self-exaltation. Secondly, jealousy harms others, or jealousy seeks to harm others. Jealousy seeks to harm others. When we are jealous, we become malicious. Now, you might say, no, I would never go and physically attack one of my friends. Okay, maybe. But is there any way that your words do? Do you complain to your spouse about your friend because really deep down there's a certain jealousy you have? That's a malicious attack. Do you gossip about them, slander them? Pastor John led us faithfully last week in talking about that from Colossians chapter 3. That looks like Satan. If you're in Christ, you're a new man, new person. But when we get jealous, we, we often want people to lose. Well, I might not, you know, attack them physically. Yeah, but you attack them verbally or you think ill of them. That, that's still not good. Well, as long as I keep it to myself. No, it's still cancer inside of you. Repent of it. Love them instead of hating them. After all, if you've been born again, you've been born again to love. So one way that we engage in malice toward other people is not always by violence, not always even with our words, but it could be simply from withholding love from them. 
not serving them, not praying for them, not caring for them. I read this week about a pastor who found himself so jealous about the success of another pastor in his city. And so, convicted by that, he began praying for that church and that pastor. And that just united his heart to that pastor. And he ended up cheering that church on for the rest of his life. That's the type of thing you do. So, don't become malicious or seek to do harm to others or withhold your love from others. Look at Jonathan. Jonathan was loyal to David. And let me say this. You see Jonathan in chapter 19 stand up to his father. You're not going to do this to David. You can't do this to David. Jonathan defends David. Friends, there are people out in the community that badmouth people in this church and this church all the time. Sadly, it happens to all churches, just badmouthing one church after another. There are people that badmouth people in this church, leaders in this church, just members of this church. And there are some of you that just listen to it. And you might not agree with it, but you just listen. And you let them continue down the road of sin that ends up hurting them. And you end up letting your brothers and sisters, who are your local church family, there's something to that in the New Testament, you let them take the bullets and you just stand by and watch. What in the world? That's not what the people of God do. You, you, you wouldn't let that happen to your family. Remember when you were young and you had a sibling and you would just sometimes get sideways with your sibling, but then someone at school would criticize your sibling? Oh, no, 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 no. You don't do that to my brother. You don't do that to my sister. I think we need some more of that. You can't say that about my brother. You can't say that about my sister. You can't do that. Yeah, you're right. They're not perfect. Either am I. And neither are you. But we've been bought by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, and we're family. Friends, we need a little bit more Jonathan in us, standing up and confronting sin, whether it be in our own household, out in the public, in the church. We must defend one another, care for one another, protect one another. Let's not be like the world. Church, let's not be like the world. Jealousy seeks to harm others, but the people of God seek to protect one another. Finally, final message, final lesson for us. The reign of God will always defeat the reign of self. The person opposing God's ways may win battles for a time, and that even is allowed by God. But they will not win the war against God. He will, in the words of Scripture, crush all of his enemies. Do not think that if you're opposing God, his people, his will, that you will succeed. Let this passage be a reminder that Saul doesn't come through at the end successful. He's humiliated. God will have his way with his enemies. This is, this is a giant application from these two chapters. Stop opposing God and love the one He's anointed, namely Jesus Christ.
Listen to Jesus' words. Follow Jesus' teaching. Obey God. Trust God. Don't sin against God. Don't sin against His people. Love Him. Love Him. Be loyal to God. Be loyal to His Son. Stop opposing His Son. Christ is the one who is anointed for His people. In this passage, David is wonderfully impressive. Jonathan is wonderfully impressive. Their lives simply point forward to Jesus Christ who leads His people, earns victory for His people, never sins against His people, never has a bad day, always instructs His people faithfully, is always there. I'm struck. The older and older I get, just the way math works, the more I sin, right? I mean, just the older, the longer you live, you're just going to pile up more sins. And I find day after day, He still forgives. He still forgives. He still bears with. He still loves. I was reading Hosea 11 this morning, and the people of Israel, it it says when He called to them, they kept going astray. As He would call, they would keep leaving. And then He says later on Hosea 11, how can I give you up? And He says, my compassion is for you. Their sin even draws out compassion from Him. You know what this is like with your kids. Your, sin is, your kid is struggling and sinning and hurting, and your heart is all the more drawn to them. You just want to bring them in, don't you? That's a, that's a godly instinct. This is what our God does. This is who Jesus Christ is. Jesus Christ should be loved by us. We should be loyal to Him. There's nobody like Him. But for some reason, oftentimes, we oppose Him. I know the Bible says, but... Who do you think is going to win that war? You or him? It's not you. In fact, look at him and find the loveliness of Christ. The one who's powerful, loving, perfect, truthful, gentle, loyal to you. This is Jesus. So let me just ask you this question. Everyone in here, do you love Jesus? Are you loyal to Jesus? Are you willing to take off your own robe that represents your own kingdom and say, your kingdom come, your will be done. I exist for you. Psalm 2 is a psalm written to kings and is written to warn kings, but also to encourage them to be loyal to God's own anointed. And I think it's a great psalm to read for us. Listen to Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage? Why does Saul rage? Why do I rage against the Lord? Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Dun, dun, dun. Oh, they might win this. They sound serious. Are you kidding me? He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. That's God establishing his government through his son. No, no, no. My son reigns. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. 
Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, and you could say, and all individuals, all sitting in the gathering of Kenyon Bible Church of Prescott on this Lord's Day, now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. And then these wonderful words, blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. If you are opposing Jesus Christ in any way, stop. Kiss the Son. He is gracious. He is powerful. He's forgiving. He is love. And take refuge in Him. Go to the one you've been fighting and seek mercy and find Him, not your enemy, but find Him to be your Savior. That's who He is. If Saul would have simply fallen to his knees, cried out for mercy from God, told David that he'd be loyal to him as well. As David is succeeding, I will be loyal to you. If Saul would have done that, he surely would have found favor with God. But he keeps opposing. So friends, if you are opposing God in any way, if you find yourself jealous, angry, resentful, Today's a good day for repentance, and it's a great day to walk in forgiveness and to find joy again. Trust in Him. Let's pray. Father, please root out any sin in us that looks like Saul, asking that you replace that by the power of your Spirit with characteristics that look like Jonathan and David and ultimately Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus Christ, we're amazed that while we were your enemies, you forgave us, brought us into the family of God. So, Father, where there's conviction today, I pray that you would meet that with genuine repentance. You'd bring forgiveness, and you'd bring a joy. Some in here have been Jonathan's, been faithful to you. I pray that you'd continue to put in them your spirit where there is even more faithfulness. We praise God for that. Some of us have been Saul's. Pray that you'd bring repentance from these Saul's. Pray that you'd bring repentance that leads to life. That we would stop opposing your kingdom, your people, your will, your ways, your word, and that we would trust in you. Father, please answer this prayer for your son's glory. We pray this in his name. Amen.